Let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 30. We're going to look at the whole chapter, of course, verses 1 through 24. If you're new or visiting or if you're just uh, having a brain freeze, we're uh, studying through the entire book of Jeremiah, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Jeremiah chapter 30, the topic, despite the impending and inevitable destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah shows the Jews it wasn't all doom and gloom by giving them a glimpse of their future prosperity in the land. The title of our message, Doom and Bloom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our morning. And Lord, uh, I was just being reminded this morning, Lord, no matter how many Bible studies we've heard, no matter how many times we've read your word, maybe even this chapter, I pray that what we do today, right now, would be transformational that your Holy Spirit would take the word of God and bring it to the hearts of the people of God in a powerful way, in a way that only you can do. There are no words of men, there is no oratory, there is no skill, no amount of knowledge, Lord, that can help. But you can impart the living word of God between the soul and the spirit of our hearts as we have ears to hear. I pray that today would be a day like no other, Lord, a day in which we see Jesus Christ more clearly and we leave more like him than when we came in. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Doom might be on the horizon. You can find voices in the disciplines of politics and economics and the environment who are all predicting doom for various reasons. Franklin Graham is predicting spiritual doom. He was quoted after the election as saying that the United States is on a path of destruction for shaking our collective fist at God. Now, if these voices are correct and doom is in our immediate future, I don't want to argue whether we are or not, but let's say that they're correct and doom is in our immediate future, we should pay close attention to chapter 30 of Jeremiah. In fact, it is the perfect chapter for people who are heading into a time of doom. Doom was the imminent future of the nation of Judah. In just a short time, the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the strongest power in the world, would burn Jerusalem and destroy the temple and carry the people away captive to Babylon. Doom was also the far future of the nation of Judah. Much of what we're going to read in this chapter looks beyond our own time to what we call the Great Tribulation. It was all doom. But as we'll see, no gloom. Chapters 30 through 33 are the most hopeful four chapters in all the prophecies of Jeremiah. In fact, when we read in verse one of this uh, chapter where it says, write down in a book, it is a special section, these four chapters, to give the people hope. Because they focus attention on the bigger picture of the mission of the Jews and the certainty of the completion of that mission thanks to the intervention of God. How are they hopeful to us? Well, if or when the days of doom set in, we too will need to look beyond them to the time we will look upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll organize my thoughts then around two points. Number one, days are coming in which your hope is to look beyond them And number two, days are coming in which your joy will be to look upon him. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 1 through 17 on the days coming in which your hope is to look beyond. Now, I don't want to freak anyone out. Regardless whether or not the United States is doomed, we are all doomed. 
Even in the best of times, we each face a personal future in which we will grow old, get sick, and die. Unless we are raptured or die suddenly, we're going to find ourselves looking beyond our fleeting days upon this earth and forward into eternity. Johnny Erickson Tata, no stranger to suffering, said, the best we can hope for in this life is a not whole peak at the shining realities ahead. Yet that peak, she said, is enough. God gave Judah their not whole peak in chapters 30 through 33. So let's begin in verse one. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus speaks the Lord God of Israel saying, write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. And he intends these next three, four chapters. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall possess it. That's it. There's your hope. The days are coming when God would restore them. He was talking to them in the sixth century and he's talking about days that haven't happened yet. He says, but that's your hope during this difficult time. And meantime, he'd been telling them for 29 chapters, things are going to get really, really bad. Let's summarize the kind of looking beyond doom that God was encouraging. The prophet Habakkuk said of those same days of that Babylonian captivity, this is the end of his prophecy, he says, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, a great depression. No food, no uh, flocks, no wealth, nothing. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation because the Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on high hills. If you are expecting something more than a look through the knothole when doom comes, then you're going to be in trouble when trouble comes. In our cases as Christians, we're excited for the place Jesus has gone to prepare for us, the mansion he's building for us, and we're looking forward to his coming to bring us there. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not a doomsayer. I'm not into doom. I am not Dr. Doom, not even Dr. Demento. I'm none of those. I don't want to be the, I, I'm not getting up here and telling you, oh, the United States is doomed because of these five factors or whatever. Maybe we are. Maybe we're not. I, I, I want to believe that happy days are here again and that things are going to get better. Don't you feel like things are getting better by the minute? Maybe not. <laughs> I'm not predicting anything, but I am saying this. Times of doom and gloom and suffering and tragedy come upon people. And I think we in America, we have a tendency to think that we're always going to bounce back. It's just a, it's going to last a week or a month or a year and then the American spirit is going to come back in and all of that. And, and we've seen that happen time and time again and I'm hoping for that. But God is saying, why don't you look at the rest of the world? And once you look at the history of the world, sometimes times of doom come because of the outflow of history and the sin that a people do and the way that God has to deal with nations. And he said, if you're alive during a time like that, you're going to have to look into the far future 
and gather strength from the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. The fig tree may fail to blossom. The olives, this would really get to me if the olives, you know, fail to yield their, you know, oil, different things like that. And God says, this is, this is hope. And, and if you're looking for anything more hope, you're looking for some, some other way out, God says, yeah, no, you don't understand. The world's in an awful condition and I've done everything I can to save individuals and I'm waiting for more people to get saved and in the meantime, nations sometimes get doomed. And, and if you're living at that time, you need to be looking way, way ahead to the coming of the Lord. Verse four, now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. And now see, ask now rather, and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. Let's stop there for now. Now, since you're a careful reader, you notice that verse four mentioned both Israel and Judah. That's interesting because the northern kingdom of Israel had been overrun by the Assyrians more than 100 years before this was written. Yet God was talking to both Israel, which didn't exist at the time, and Judah. It lets us know that the trouble God is discussing here wasn't just the Babylonians. He was looking further into the future and talking about a united Israel enduring the great tribulation that we read about in the book of the Revelation. We know this is the great tribulation because it mentions suffering with labor pains. Jesus said that that tribulation would be like a woman in labor. Additionally, Jesus said it would be a time unlike any other time of trouble ever on the earth. When the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple and all, it was terrible but it wasn't a time like had, that people had never seen before or never would see again. And so these verses, are, God is talking to his sixth century people about what is coming, but he's asking them to raise their gaze to something way, way far in the future. And it's here called the time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob uh, reference to Israel and Judah, meaning that although it will come upon the whole world of men, it is especially designed for the Jews to get them to return to their God. Every now and then we need to be reminded that it is through Israel that all the world is to be blessed with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. God's plan for the human race and the redemption of creation revolves around the Jews. God said in the Garden of Eden, I'm coming into human reality, I'm going to be the God-man. And then a little bit later on in the revelation of uh, his will for the human race in the book of Genesis, he, you find out that it's going to be through Abraham and his descendants that the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior is going to come. And God is never through with Israel. If anybody wants to tell you, anybody who could say that God is through with Israel and that he doesn't have a plan for them, they're not reading the newspaper for one thing. They're certainly not reading their Bible. You understand if God is through with Israel, we can't trust him for any promise that he's ever made to anyone else. God made unconditional promises to the physical descendants of Abraham, not the spiritual descendants. He made 
promises to, to us as well through Abraham, but many of the promises, the Abrahamic covenant we call it, they're to the physical descendants of Abraham, the Jews, and if God reneges on any one of those promises, then he is a promise breaker and you and I have no hope in anything God has ever said. And so Israel, very, very important. We need to keep that in mind. Maybe even more so uh, as we see what's going to unfold the next few weeks in the Middle East. Verse seven continues and says, he shall be saved out of it. In other words, the Lord's gonna save Israel. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. The nation of Israel will survive the great tribulation and be elevated as the chief nation on the earth. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. Never again will they be persecuted and enslaved by other nations. And here we read that David, and this is the real resurrected King David from the Old Testament, he will be the king in those days. Jesus will rule and reign the earth from Jerusalem. David will sit on his throne as the king of Israel. Verse 10, therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have rest and be quiet and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. That's a great summary of the great tribulation, by the way, in verse 11. God dealing with the nations, punishing Israel in justice, uh, and saving them at the end. And it's clear that these verses are about ultimate outcomes, about the future beyond uh, the Jews and even beyond our own times. God references the Jews being scattered not just to Babylon but to many nations and he indicates a final judgment upon those nations by saying, I make a full end of nations. Doesn't mean he's gonna wipe out all nations and that there won't be other nations. It means he will have a final judgment upon them. Jesus uh, told us in what is called the Olivet Discourse, he uh, spoke to his disciples about what was going to happen at the end of the age. And at the end of that, at the end of chapter 25 in the Gospel of Matthew, you read that uh, there's gonna be a judgment of nations and God is going to divide the nations. And uh, this is what that is talking about. The great tribulation is necessary to correct the Jews in justice. Like the Babylonian invasion and captivity, it will be a necessary discipline to turn God's people back to him to get them to acknowledge the Messiah they crucified in his first coming. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All of your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy with the chastisement of a cruel one for the multitude of your iniquities because your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow's incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities because your sins have increased. I have done these things to you. Therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured and all your adversaries, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder and all who prey upon you, I will make a prey. Now these verses make a point. Apart from God's intervention to discipline Israel, she would have perished long ago 
and she will perish in the future if he doesn't intervene. And so that's what it's saying, is that there's a, they're in terrible trouble, they have an incurable problem. Nevertheless, God is going to intervene on their behalf, deal with the nations, and preserve them. And so in verse 17, it says, I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast, saying, this is Zion, no one seeks her. So he's talking about a time when all the nations of the world are against Israel, uh, and he must step in. Now, wait a minute, didn't we just read, didn't we just say that they were incurable? Well, God is saying that his people had gotten and will get to a point in which they can only be saved by his extreme measures. Nothing else, no one else could save them as a people. This isn't the illustration that's used, but I was thinking about what would fit into this where he says, hey, your problem is incurable, but I'm going to come in and cure you. And it reminded me of a person who maybe had uh, gangrene, let's say, in their foot. And so... You contract gangrene, it's in your foot, and if you go to the doctor, he's gonna say a couple things to you. He's gonna say, number one, this is incurable. Your foot is gone. You'll never use that foot again. It's all dead tissue. It's severe and terrible. It's over. And what I'm gonna do is cut your leg off six inches above that foot so that you will live. And that's your only option. And so when we read these verses, what God is saying is, guys, I've been talking to you for the past 40 years through Jeremiah, and for hundreds of years prior to that, you refuse to repent, you're getting worse and worse and worse, it's like a national gangrene, and and unless I cut you off right now, you're going to cease to exist, and frankly, I can't allow that to happen, because you, Israel, are the hope of the world. You're my plan to save mankind. And so God says, I'm going to design a severe cure for you, the Babylonian captivity. And you know what? 70 years later, Israel was cured of idolatry forever. They never had a problem with idolatry from that point forward. And in the future, when Israel is in their land in unbelief, not turning to their Messiah, uh, not believing that Jesus is the Christ, God says, I'm going to bring upon you the great tribulation. I'm going to also judge all the nations of the world through. It's going to affect the entire world. But at the end of it, that severe mercy is going to render you in a state to when Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives, you're going to look upon him whom you've pierced, the Bible says, and all Israel shall be saved. It is the only way. It is God's way. And so... Amputation, it's extreme, but it stops the spread of disease and it saves you. Spiritual amputation is sometimes a viable option, and that's what God is doing with his people. Because of the multitude of their iniquities, he says, God amputates to save them, and he'll do it again in the near future. Now, Jesus promised he would come for us, to take us to heaven. Could happen at any moment. As we wait moment by moment, some of us are suffering, some of us will suffer, some of us are gonna die. But God has given us enough of a glimpse through the knothole to the other side to look beyond all earthly sorrow and suffering to the hope of his appearing. And so we say days are coming in which your joy will be to look upon him. That's verses 18 through 24. 
These verses look a little bit further. They look past that second coming of Jesus into what we call the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus on planet Earth just prior to eternity. Verse 18, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. And then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving in the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as before and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. As I mentioned, central Israel now under rocket fire for the first time since Saddam Hussein launched Scud missiles into Tel Aviv during the first Gulf War. And Israel has been told to prepare for seven weeks of war by her leaders. They're calling up reserve troops by the tens of thousands. Iran and other Islamic nations and terror groups are all sworn to the utter annihilation of Israel and every last Jew from this planet. Israel will never be displaced again, and she cannot be eliminated. To her enemies, God says what we just read, I will punish all who oppress them. I don't know what's gonna happen in the Middle East right now. I don't know what's gonna happen with the United States. I don't know any of that. I do know one thing. Israel will not be displaced. The Jews will not be eliminated. And God will punish all those who oppress them. Those things are solid and sure picks. Verse 21, their nobles shall be from among them. Their governor shall come from their midst. I will cause him to draw near. He shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? Well, who is it? Someone is described as drawing near to God, as approaching God. And he's said to have pledged his heart to God. I think it's Jesus. When did Jesus pledge his heart to approach God? Well, I can't say exactly what is intended here, but I think we can say that Jesus pledged his heart in eternity past before the universe was ever spoken into existence. You see, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, they knew because, you know, God is omniscient that once this universe was created and once the human race was created, that there would be a rebellion, that Adam and Eve would sin in the Garden of Eden. That love that is, is necessary between God and man, it required a free choice. And it didn't catch God by surprise that Adam and Eve sinned. And before that ever happened, there was a plan in place because God speaks it to them immediately upon their sin. He says, here's the plan. The seed of the woman is gonna come, crush the serpent's head while his own heel gets bruised, and it is what's called the first evangelism, the proto-evangelistic, they call it. It is the first mention of God coming in human flesh to die for the sins of the world that mankind might be restored and redeemed. And so before the creation of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the person we know as Jesus Christ, the God-man, he said, I will be the one, I will pledge my heart to be born of a virgin and to be the God-man and to die on the cross so that the human race can be redeemed and restored. That's the pledge. And then he pledged his heart again, did he not, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now he was there. 
He had kept his promise. But there as he faced the cross, as he prayed to his father, he prayed a heartfelt prayer. He said, Father, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me. And then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he endured the cross, despising its shame, so that by being lifted up, he might draw all men to himself and that he might be the savior of all men, especially those that believe. And so that was a pledge as well. And then we read in the revelation of Jesus Christ of Jesus stepping forward to approach God, taking from him, as it were, the scroll the seven-sealed scroll, and then as those seven seals are opened, revealing seven trumpets and then seven bowls of judgment, they take us through the great tribulation. And so this one that we're seeing here in Jeremiah, I don't know how much the, Jew, the average Jew in the sixth century understood this, but we with hindsight and with the completed scripture can look back and say it's Jesus all the way. It's Jesus who came to die for the sins of the world, who pledged his heart to the Father, who went through with it on the cross and who is going to step forward in heaven, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and complete this mission and take over the world that he now owns and defeat the devil once and for all, put all the nations in their place and rule and reign over the earth for a thousand years and then on into eternity. Verse 22, you shall be my people and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. God's mission for Israel in human history was for them to be his people in order to show the other nations and peoples and tribes and tongues that he is God. You know, when the Jews originally came into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua and the spies went into Jericho, the first city they encountered, Rahab said, man alive, we've heard about you people. Everybody is trembling and in fear because of the God of Israel. I wanna be saved. And that was, that, that's the effect that Israel was supposed to have on all the nations of the world. Do you know the devil understands this plan of God? And that's why he's been trying to exterminate the Jews ever since he figured out that it was a descendant of Abraham that was going to be the Messiah. And he still tries to exterminate the Jews because there have to be Jews left at the end of human history, otherwise God is a liar. But he's not just working on the externals, he's not just working to eliminate the Jewish race, he gets inside, as it were, and tries to eliminate them from within. This was the uh, counsel of the false prophet Balaam. He said, hey, nothing I can do will defeat the children of Israel because they're gods. But if you get in there with some idolatry, send some prostitutes in there and get them worshiping idols and God will discipline them for you. He'll wipe them out. And so there is this twofold strategy of the devil. If I can kill all the Jews, great. If I, in the meantime, I'll try and keep them blind and in unbelief of their Messiah. And so God says here, uh, there's coming a time when they will be his people and he will be their God again and the whirlwind of the Lord, the tribulation, will uh, deal with all the wicked during those times. Verse 24, the fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will consider it. Another translation reads, the wrath of the Lord will not be turned back until he has done it, 
until he has put into effect the purpose of his heart, in the days to come, you will have full knowledge of this. It's a strong statement that says, what I've told you I'm going to do is gonna happen and nothing can stop it. If you uh, read in the revelation of Jesus Christ, in the opening chapters, there's indication that once the tribulation begins, it begins with the signing of a peace treaty between the man who will eventually be the Antichrist and the nation of Israel, allowing them to rebuild their temple. But once it begins, God says nothing can stop it. There's, you know, we like to watch these disaster specials and these, you know, apocalyptic scenarios and they all end with the idea that if we just quit using plastic the world will be saved if we, if we just quit driving cars the world will be saved if not it's you know we're headed downhill but if we just do this god says once the tribulation starts there is no stopping it it's like a runaway train chapter after chapter, seal after seal, bowl after bowl, it's going to unfold just the way he said it would. And he will bring Israel back into a full knowledge of him and he will divide between the nations of the world. Very strong statement. It all culminates, does it not, in the full and complete restoration of face-to-face fellowship with God. That's what was lost in the Garden of Eden. It's what God wanted to enjoy with mankind. It's why we were created in the first place, to bring pleasure to God and to have fellowship with him. But it was lost pretty early on, I would say. And it's been lost for the past 7,000 years as far as full face-to-face fellowship with the Lord. But that's going to be restored. The days are coming when you and I will have the joy of looking upon him, of looking full in his wonderful face. I don't know what our nation or our church or my family or even myself will face in the coming minutes or hours or days or months or years because we're awaiting the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That means he could happen right now. Actually, it can happen before I say now. Could be minutes from now or hours, or days, or months, or years, you you get the picture. But every second, I believe that it could happen right now. So however much time ends up between that, I don't know what's going to happen. I talked to my mom yesterday on the phone. She's 93 years old. I kind of expect to live to be 90 years old. My dad died, he was 93. My mom's 92, 93. All my brothers are still alive. There are you know, two of them older than me, one younger. I just figured, if I had to guess, if I was at the palace and they asked me to, to you know, gamble on it, I'd say, yeah, I'll live till I'm 90. And then I'll probably go out and get into a car wreck because I shouldn't be gambling. <laughs> I snuck that in. I could wake up tomorrow and say, hey, what's this lump and be dead in two weeks because I have some kind of an aggressive cancer. I don't know what's going to happen. And so whether or not the United States is doomed and whatever that means, whether we're headed for martial law or, or just a depression or, or whether things are gonna be great, I have my own personal doom to worry about. And God is saying, look, there, the, you know, the world is not the way I intended it. It's not the way I created it. It's fallen. 
In Romans, we read that the whole creation groans. It's just, please do something. And God says, I've planned to do something beforehand. I've done it. I've come into the world. I died as a man. And as God, I rose from the dead. And as the God-man, I offer salvation. And in my long suffering, I'm just waiting for more people to get saved because the alternative to salvation is eternal damnation. And so you can understand why I'm hesitant to really pull the trigger on this thing. Because once I do, it's inevitable, it's all over. You understand that four-fifths of the world's population is gonna be killed during the Great Tribulation. You think what's happening on the East Coast is bad right now. One storm. I mean, you're talking about global catastrophe like it can't even be imagined. It's worse than anything Hollywood has ever in, envisioned. It's worse than War of the Worlds. It's, 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 you know, it's worse than anything you can imagine. Four-fifths of the world's population, that's a lot of people, a lot of stinking, rotting bodies. So we don't know. But God says, here's the hope, and it's a real hope. I'm coming, I'm gonna deal with it, I'm gonna take care of it, I'm gonna cleanse everything, restore everything, eventually recreate everything. There's gonna be an eternity in which there is no more sorrow, no more sin, no more death. You won't even be able to cry. And wherever you look, you'll be able to see me and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. We'll have perfect fellowship forever and ever and ever. And there's gonna come a time in each of our lives when that is the only hope that we actually have. It may come sooner, it may come later, but that is going to have to sustain us. And like Johnny Erickson said, it's enough. Let's pray.